Uh, today, we're beginning a new series, and we're entitling it uh, Portraits of Grace in the Old Testament. Now, in this series, what we want to do is we want to look at stories, stories in the Old Testament, and we want to explore how these stories give us hints and glimpses of the climax of God's grand story. We want to see how these Old Testament stories point forward, point us forward, or how they foreshadow the climax of what God is going to do in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, what you'll find with any good story is that before the author reveals the climax, he or she will give hints of the climax throughout the story. So, while the climax and the ending may be surprising, it's never arbitrary. It's never out of left field. I mean, just think about the last good story you read, or think about the last good movie that you watched. When you get to the end, when you get to the climax, there are usually two responses. There's first shock, and that sounds sort of like, wow, wow, that was great. But that's usually followed by a second response, and that's appreciation. And appreciation sounds something like this. Ah, now I get it. It makes sense. You know, sometimes with really good movies or really good books, you're, you're tempted to go back and read it again or see it again. Why? Because now that you know the ending of the story, you want to go back to the beginning and look for clues of the climax. You want to try to see how the author scatters the, the climax in seed form throughout the story, and you want to see it develop now with this knowledge that you have. You know, I recently did this with the movie, uh, the thriller Get Out. You know, when I saw that movie, um, you know, I got to the end, and I was like, wow, this was a great, great movie. And I had to go back and watch it again, knowing the ending. You know, this is true not only of stories, but it's true of people as well. You know, two years ago, when I first came to this church, one of the first things I had to do was I had to clean the office. Then it was more like a storage closet. It wasn't really a functioning office, so I had to come and clean everything. Now, while I was cleaning one day, I found these really, really old photos. And of course, when you're cleaning and you stumble upon something, what do you do? You stop cleaning and you start to look at that. So I started to go through those photos, interested, and I stumbled across this photo. Do you see, do you see that photo? I stumbled across this photo and I thought, who is this person? Those of you who are laughing know. And then I started flipping and I found this photo. <laughs> and then I flipped some more and I found this. This person in this photo, I realized, is Joe Park, one of our beloved deacons. The man who was helping me clean the office. The man who actually interviewed me to come to this church. The man I was co-laboring with together was the man in these photos. And now that I knew who Deacon Joe was, now that I saw him in person, in the present, I can go back to these photos and I can see traces of him in this photo. You know, it happens all the time when you see old photos of yourself or someone that you know, right? At the time when the photo was taken, you would not be able to predict how that person would look or turn out in 15, 20 years. 
But in the present, now, you can actually see signs and hints of how that person years ago would become who he or she is in the present. Same thing with stories. Now that we know the ending, now that we know how God's story ends, we can actually go back to the beginning and see traces of it throughout. And this is what we want to do for the remainder of the summer. We want to see portraits of God's grace. We want to see small glimpses of the gospel through Old Testament stories. And this week, I want to begin with what is perhaps considered the most well-known story in the Old Testament, and that's the story of David and Goliath. Oh, by the way, um, you know, every week we do this series, I'll show more photos, okay? There are plenty more where that came from. So please, uh, just, just be on the lookout. David and Goliath, a well-known story. It's a story of fear and courage. And today, as we look at this story, I want to explore the relationship between the two. What is the relationship between fear and courage, and what is the right balance? And to do that, we're going to explore three characters that are prominent in this story. We're going to look at Saul, we're going to look at Goliath, and we're going to look at David. So first, let me give you the setting, the setting behind 1 Samuel 17. The Israelites have been in constant war with the Philistines at this point. They've been at war for almost 200 years. They've won some battles and they've lost some battles. But now the Philistines, they have marched up to Israel territory. And the only thing that is now separating the Philistines and the Israelites from engaging in war is a valley. So picture the Philistines on one side, the Israelites on the other side, and this valley, this deep valley in between. And now as they see each other and they're about to face off, no one makes a move. Why? Because whoever goes into the valley is going to be at a disadvantage. And so there's this stalemate that goes on. They're waiting for each other to make the move so they can go and conquer one another. Now, as they're waiting for one another, this giant emerges. His name is Goliath. And he comes out with this full-on armor, and he comes into the valley, and he challenges the Israelite to what's called a single combat. Some call it the battle of the champions. Now, this is a practice where two people from opposite sides would engage in one-on-one -on -one combat. And they would engage in one-on-one -on -one combat as representatives of their entire people. And so whoever fought in this one-on-one -on -one battle, the winner or the victory, the results would be conferred back to their people. So if this one person won, the entire people would win. This was a common practice back then. It was an efficient way to deal with war, so there are no casualties. Whoever won the one-on-one, -on -one, the, whoever lost, the other side would become the, the winning side's slave. I mean, think of the first fight scene in the movie Troy. Remember when Brad Pitt, you know, he's, he's sleeping and someone comes to find him and they're saying, listen, there's this guy, you need a fight. And Brad Pitt comes out and he runs and he, and he conquers that giant. And as a result, that side won. So giant, so Goliath here in this text, he emerges and he challenges anyone to a battle. And he does this for about 40 days. He gets up in the morning, goes down into the valley, and he says, anyone, come out and fight me. 
He waits until evening. When the sun goes down, he goes back into his camps, and he does this for 40 days, every day coming out, insulting the Israelites, telling them to come down and fight me. And you think at this point, a warrior would emerge. You think at some point, someone would stand up and say, I will go and fight. But the text tells us that they were greatly afraid. Whenever he got up, the Israelites would actually run back. Now, in this scenario, who should we expect to come out among the camps of Israel to fight Goliath? Well, there's no one more qualified than King Saul, the king of Israel, King Saul himself. You see, back then, kings were not representative figures like they are today. They were actual leaders in battle. I mean, think of King Arthur as he leads his nation into war. Or think of Aragon in The Lord of the Rings. Kings were the most skilled in battle, and they led their armies into war with courage and valor. You see, Saul is the right person at this time. You know, he's described throughout 1 Samuel as being a head taller than everyone. So he's much, much bigger in stature than everyone else. 1 Samuel also tells us that Saul was a handsome individual, that he had charisma, that Saul was from wealth, that he had a great background, and he must have been skilled. And when he is anointed king, 1 Samuel tells us that Saul was successful in battle. He led the Israelites to many, many victories. And here is this giant, Goliath, who stands up making a mockery out of his people and, more importantly, making a mockery out of God, Yahweh. Now is the perfect time for, for Saul to actually step up one final time and put an end to this war with the Philistines. But the text tells us that Saul, he too, was greatly afraid. You know, Saul was a man who seemed to have courage. He pretended to be brave and a man of valor. But in reality, Saul, he was just a pretender. He was an imposter. You know, for me, Saul is one of the most interesting characters in the Bible. Um, many literary scholars, non-Christians, have actually even picked up on Saul and studied uh, his character. See, Saul is very, very interesting. When he, when he starts, when, when the Bible introduces Saul, he is this humble guy. You know, when, when Samuel wants to anoint him as king, you can actually find Saul, he's hiding. He's hiding because he doesn't want to be king. But he gets anointed, and as the first king of Israel, he becomes quickly a national hero. He leads the Israelites into battle, and he quickly wins. Soon after, Saul, he becomes, he, he becomes filled with, with pride and, and hubris, and he starts to disobey God and set up monuments in his own name. Um, when he was just a king, and he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a priest, he actually, at one point, he oversteps his boundaries and he starts to offer up sacrifices in place of Samuel, thinking, whatever Samuel can do, I can do because I'm king. You know, Saul is an interesting character because he started real humble, but he quickly became filled with pride. 
And towards the end, as Saul is called out for his pride and his sins, he becomes more and more hardened. And then he actually becomes delusional. And towards the end of his life, Saul becomes mad. He becomes insane. He starts going crazy. He's very similar to Shakespeare's Macbeth or Othello. See, Saul, as king, he is actually an imposter. He's a pretend king. Saul is someone who has no courage. He is someone who is filled with fear. He is, in the classic sense, a bully. He appears tough on the outside and confident, but instead is filled with fear. Saul is a man who has no courage, but is filled with fear. That's Saul. What about Goliath? Who is Goliath? Well, Goliath is this large individual. He's anywhere between 6'9 and 9'9. I know that's a really long range because there's a lot of discrepancies. We're not exactly sure. But he's as short as 6 feet 9 and as tall as 9 feet 9. The Bible describes him as wearing this armor that's over 120 pounds. And he has multiple weapons, a sword, a spear, and a javelin. And he has this shield, this large shield. I mean, he's carrying both offensive and defensive equipment. These equipment, they're made of bronze and steel. We know that these things are domestic and imported. They got their hands on this. The Philistines, in fact, uh, after they conquered the Hittites many, many years ago, they, they became uh, the leaders in, 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 in creating iron and steel. This was, in fact, during the Iron Age. So they had, so Goliath, he had this equipment, and he was built like a tank. Now, I know for many of us, when we think of Goliath, we tend to think of this man who is this unbreakable force. And Goliath is used metaphorically in our language today to represent this unscalable obstacle or opponent. But, but biblical scholars and historians have noted throughout the years that this was actually not the case. Goliath is not presented to us as this unbeatable character. The biblical writers don't want us to see Goliath as this undefeatable character, but they actually want us to see Goliath as a foolish character, especially against the likes of someone like David. Now, this was popularized more recently uh, by Malcolm Gladwell, but historians have long noted that in ancient armies, there have always been three kinds of warriors. The first was cavalry, and these were men who rode on horses and attacked in chariots. The second was infantry. These were foot soldiers wearing armor, and they were carrying swords and shields, and they fought hand-to-hand combat. Goliath was in infantry. But the third kind were artillery, or long-distance fighters. They were archers, and they were slingers. Now, I know when we think of slingers or slingshots, we tend to think of this, this wooden piece that, that a child gets from you know, a tree, attach a rubber band to it, and you know, shooting these small little pellets of rocks. But slingers or slingshots weren't actually like that. They were actually deadly weapons. 
What the slingers would do is they would carry this leather patch and attach, uh, that, that was attached to two sides of a long strand of rope, and they would put inside this leather patch a really dense rock, okay, with a smooth stone with, with high density. And what they do, would, they would swing it around wide and fast. Some people say up to seven rotations per second. And they would release one end of the rope and they would hurl this rock forward at upwards of 80 to about 150 miles per hour. Now, not only um, were these slings really fast, but the slingers were actually very accurate. Okay. They could, they, they're not just hurling stones, but they were accurate. They can shoot someone or hit someone accurately from upwards of 600 feet away. That's two football fields. I mean, they were your you know, ancient snipers. Judges, in fact, tells us, judges in the Bible actually tells us that these slingers were so accurate that they, can, they, can, they were described as being accurate within a hair's breadth. It's figurative language, but that's how accurate they were. Now, you, you think about this, right? Goliath, he is clothed in all of this armor, and he's carrying all of this heaven, he, uh, heavy weapon. And even though Goliath is really big, he can barely move. He's in this valley, and now David comes, a shepherd's boy, but also shepherds were extremely skilled in slinging. David comes without any armor on, and he comes down from the hill from a distance, and he's rotating this slingshot. I mean, who has the upper hand here? It's actually David. It's like someone who's fighting with a sword and another who has a 45-millimeter semi-automatic or an automatic handgun. On the outside, David looks, or on the outside, Goliath looks seemingly undefeatable with weapons that no one has seen in that day. But in reality, the biblical writers want us to see that Goliath is actually slow and vulnerable, especially against the likes of David. You see, Goliath should have known this, but the only thing that Goliath sees is a shepherd's boy coming down with a shepherd's rod, and he laughs. You know, if Saul was a man with no courage and full of fear, Goliath is the exact opposite. Goliath is a man with no fear and all courage. You know what that's called when you have no fear and all courage? It's called overconfidence. I mean, we've seen it in all shapes and sizes, haven't we? How overconfidence leads to one's demise. We see it in the rabbit, in the story of the tortoise and the hare. We saw it with the New England Patriots in last year's Super Bowl. Yes, that's for you guys. We saw it with the real estate market and the banks in 2008, overconfidence. This is not going to fail. It's too big to fail. We saw it with Venezuela and their, and their economic downfall in 2013. We have oil. We are going to be okay. We've seen how overconfidence leads to downfall. And we see it here in today's passage. 
we see the dangers of being overly confident. We see it in non-Christians today. We see people who are overconfident in their intellect, thinking that if God really doesn't make sense to me, he cannot exist. We see it in in non-Christians being overconfident in their morality, thinking I'm a much better person than religious people. I don't need Jesus. I'm better than those church-going people. I don't need a savior. We see it in Christians in other ways. We see how Christians can become overconfident, thinking that what they do don't matter. We see Christians being overconfident, thinking that they can live their lives as they want and do as they're pleased, living licentious lives, thinking it's okay, I have my insurance policy. Friends, the Bible gives us courage. And it's courage through Jesus, and that's called assurance. But the Bible also warns us against presumption, false confidence, or overconfidence. The Bible tells us to be careful of spiritual blindness. The Bible tells us to work work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So we see here that Saul as we go back, is a man with no courage, and he's full of fear. Goliath is a man with no fear and all courage. And now third, what about David? What kind of man is David? David is a man with both fear and courage. You know, at first glance, I know that David, he seems to be this overconfident person, just like Goliath. Here's the shepherd's boy. He's delivering bread and cheese and grain. He's just a delivery boy. But when he sees Goliath, he says, I'm going to go and fight him. I mean, you talk about hubris, right? I mean, who is this guy? Even his brothers are saying, no, get out of here. You can't do this. You're just a little boy. You know, on the outside, David seems to be this confident, this overly confident young individual. You know, he's got the the Kobe Bryant syndrome, right? Where he thinks that every shot he takes, he's going to win, and every game he plays, he's going to win. But is David really like that? You know, if you know anything about King David, you'll know that David was a courageous person, but he was also a fearful person. I mean, if you just read the Samuel narratives, or better yet, if you read the Psalms, you can see this. This is Psalm 9. Many, many scholars believe that this psalm was the psalm that David wrote to reflect upon his battle with the Philistines and namely Goliath. And this is what David says as he reflects back to his battle with Goliath. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount all of your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. You know, I know David seems like this young boy who's overly confident, who goes into the valley to fight Goliath. But for David, this valley is actually, he considers it to be the gates of death. Or consider Psalm 56. This is something that David wrote much later on while he's actually being attacked by the Philistines. He's running away from the same enemies 
He says this, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And David says this, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. This is against the same enemies that David in 1 Samuel 17 is defeating. You know, David was a fearful person. He was filled with fear. But David, he found and he knew the source of true courage. And that was in the Lord. While Goliath is courageous because of his size, because of his armor, David's courage comes from the Lord. This is what David says as he engages in battle with the Philistine. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Friends, courage is not the absence of fear. Rather, courage is, something, is acting on belief despite fear. Courage is responding in the face of fear. Courage is the result of one overcoming fear. You know, in 1963, Martin Luther King, he went from his home in Atlanta down to Birmingham, Alabama, the deep south, to continue the protest against segregation. And Martin Luther King, we see him as a man of unshakable conviction. But he recounts how he was deathly afraid. The night he went down to Birmingham, he gathers his aides and he's talking. And he tells them, some of you, we might not return. And he tells one of his close confidants that he never wanted to go to Birmingham. He never wanted to be there. And when he kissed his wife and his children goodbye down on Carroll Road in Atlanta, Martin Luther King said, I didn't think I would ever see them again. But MLK, though he was filled with fear, overcoming it in the face of it, despite it, acted upon conviction. And that's courage. So we find here three characters, Saul, an imposter, David, a, or Goliath, a counterfeit, and David, the true champion. Now, I can end here. I can close the sermon here, and I can tell everyone in this room to be courageous. I can end by saying, face your fears. I can even tell you to be like David and to find your source of courage in God. But that's simply not enough. You see, 1 Samuel 17 is just the beginning of God's story. It is not the climax of his story. It is only a glimpse. And the real climax of God's story is Jesus and his ultimate single combat against Satan, against sin, and against death. You know, the parallels between David here and Jesus in the New Testament are just too numerous to go into debt. But just let me mention a few of them. You see, Jesus, just like David, was sent by his father and rejected by his own brothers. Jesus, like David, was from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah. Jesus, like 
David was a shepherd. Jesus, like David, seemed to be weak, incapable of battling a giant like Goliath. And here we find Goliath clothed in a scale of armor. His armor has scales. He almost has the skin of a giant serpent, a snake. And Jesus, like David, was deathly afraid. You know, Jesus, before his own battle, he prays, take this cup from me. Jesus, before his own battle, he tells his disciples, my heart is overwhelmed to the point of death. In other words, Jesus tells his disciples, I feel like I'm going to die. I can't take this. But Jesus, like David, puts his trust in his father. And he goes down into the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus, like David, defeats his opponent. Jesus defeats sin and death. And we, like the Israelites, we are standing on the other side of that cliff, afraid. Our knees are buckling because we know that we are close to being slaves. We are close to being captives from war. But now, through Jesus' victory, we are freed. Jesus' victory becomes our victory. I told you in the beginning that this battle is actually called the battle of the champions. You know, when we think of champion, we think it means victor or winner. But champion literally means man in between. Champion actually means the man who stands between the opposition in front and his own people behind. That's what a champion means. Champion means, it refers to someone who goes in our place. Champion speaks of someone who represents us and who gives us the results of the battle. That's why we call sports teams champions, because they are going between the opposition and the country or the city or the state that they represent, the people that they represent, and when they win, we call them champion because their victory is conferred to us. When they win, we win. And as David was Israel's champion, Jesus, he is our champion. You see, this story is not just for us to be like David, but this story is about who we should look to the greater David, the greater champion, Jesus. And you know, now Jesus, you know, just like David as he went to the camps and he told the people, let no man's heart fail, Jesus also, he looks to his disciples and he tells us in Scripture, don't lose heart, don't be afraid. You know, I thought about, you know, just some of the things that we are afraid of. Right? I mean, we don't really deal with things like um, deadly diseases or sicknesses that often. Um, you know, in terms of security, I think this is a relatively very safe place. Okay? We're, we live in safe uh, neighborhoods, and, 
and the world has become much safer. Uh, you know, we're not afraid of, you know, armies raiding us as much as the people back then were. But I started to think about what are some of the things that we are afraid of? What are some of the things you guys are afraid of? I think we're afraid of failure, right? We're afraid of being uh, irrelevant. Uh, we're afraid of being alone. We're afraid of not meeting expectations. We are afraid of losing what we possess. And the point of this story is not to motivate you by and through fear. But the point of this story is to give you courage in the face of your fears so that you can act upon your beliefs. This is the freeing and liberating power of the gospel. It binds you not in the chains of your fears, but it frees you so that you may live for him who loved you and gave himself up for you. See, the gospel gives us courage to overcome these fears because we've been crucified with Jesus because we have already died to our old selves and now we can live for him. The gospel frees us to face our fears and to be courageous. I just want to read for you one last quote before we end. This is from G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy. He talks about courage in this way. He says, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. Courage means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same shall save it. This paradox is the whole principle of courage. Imagine a soldier surrounded by enemies. If he wants to get out, he needs to combine a strong sense for living with the strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and he will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. No philosopher has ever expressed this romantic riddle with clarity, but Christianity has done more. It has marked the limits of it in the awful graves of the suicide and the hero, showing the distance between him who dies for the sake of living and him who dies for the sake of dying. Jesus tells us that we can face our fears and be courageous because we have been near death. We have died with Christ already. And the life we now live, we consider it not our own. This is how scripture calls us to face our fears and to be courageous. Join me in prayer at this time.